Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Hello everyone and welcome to Stem Cells at Lunch here at the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine. Uh, I am Georgie and today we are very lucky to have Dr. Shalav Isakovic joining us. He is currently an Associate Professor in the Department of Molecular Cell Biology in the Weissman Institute of Science in Israel, and he previously completed his postdoc at MIT. Uh, his lab applies tools from systems biology to study the design principles of mammalian tissues, seeking to understand the structure of tissues, their single cell gene expression, and how these intercellular interactions are perturbed in disease. So thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for the talk that you just gave as well, which was incredibly interesting. Thank you. So um, firstly, for our listeners, could you just explain a little more about your work that you do, the organs that you work on, and the specific questions that you're trying to answer? Yeah, so we're generally interested in understanding how the single cells uh, in our body work together in the context of tissues to collectively achieve the physiological goal of the tissues. And we're, we're focusing on the main metabolic uh, organs, uh, the intestine, the liver, the pancreas. And what these uh, tissues have in common is that they're not just a bag of cells floating around, they're highly structured. They're composed of repeating anatomical units, sort of tiled with repeating units. And these units are polarized by either blood flow or morphogen sources. And so different coordinates along these structures uh, consist of completely different uh, microenvironments. And as, as a result, cells that, that reside in different coordinates uh, are, can be very, very different. Cells that we previously thought were uniform cells, like intestinal cells or liver cells, the hepatocytes in the liver, uh, we actually find that they're highly heterogeneous and they sort of adapt their function to their local uh, graded microenvironment. And, and what we're doing is we're using tools to measure individual cells uh, from the tissue uh, and combine uh, this single cell, these single cell approaches with, with spatial mapping to uh, basically characterize these spatial gene expression profiles, a phenomena that has been termed the zonation, tissue zonation. Thank you. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about the different methods that you use and um, what spatial transcriptomics is? Yeah, so uh, in recent years, there's been a revolution in our ability to, to generate massive amounts of uh, very high quality data on single cells from tissues. Uh, one of the main tools is single cell RNA sequencing, where we take a tissue, we dissociate it into thousands of single cells, and we measure the complete transcriptome uh, of these uh, single cells. The problem here is, of course, that when we dissociate the tissue, we completely, completely lose track of the coordinate within the tissue structures where the cells came from. So what we're doing is to try to retrieve these coordinates using spatial approaches. One spatial approach we're using is called the single molecule fluorescence in situ realization, single molecule fish. Uh, it's a technique that allows us to take tissue sections. So now we preserve the structure of the tissue. Uh, and in these tissues, we can uh, apply probe strategy where, which reveals individual RNA molecules of any gene of interest as spots under the microscope. And uh, we, we can basically image a few genes that we find to have zonated expression. And then using this information, we can go back to the single cell RNA sequencing and examine specifically the genes we've mapped under the microscope. And according to their expression, 
we can infer where the same cells came from. This is one spatial method that we're combining. Another one is laser capture and microarray section sequencing, where again, we take a tissue section and we use a laser to cut individual small pieces of tissue uh, at different uh, zones in our structure of interest. And uh, basically the laser cuts this tissue, goes out of focus, produces a pulse, and then this piece of tissue jumps out of the slide into a cap of an Eppendorf tube. Then we can dissociate the tissue and uh, basically profile the RNA molecules in the specific tissue region. And this again gives us sort of spatial landmarks that we can combine together with our single cells. Uh, and today we have other very advanced methods that are coming out all of the time. For example, there's a method called spatial transcriptomics where you can actually take a slide, uh, second a tissue, a section of tissue on a slide and uh, basically sequence all of the RNA molecules in thousands of spots uh, that are tied in the slide. It's not single cell resolution, but it does, does give you a very high quality spatial map, low resolution spatial map. So these are the main techniques we're using. Thank you for that very detailed explanation. Um, obviously, we're talking about different things. So we're talking about uh, measuring protein expression, but also gene expression. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the importance of uh, looking at both of these and an example of when they don't exactly match like you were talking about in your talk earlier, which was very interesting. Yeah, yeah, so definitely. Uh, so first of all, uh, the RNA world is, is, is many leaps forward from uh, the protein world. Uh, uh, there's very exciting uh, approaches now that, that enable performing single-cell proteomics uh, to measure in single cells not only the RNA content of all the genes, but also the protein content content, and I think that this is a very exciting advancement in, in, in years to come. Uh, currently, in tissues, uh, we still need uh, a large amount of cells to get reasonable protein measurement. So some of the approaches we're, we're developing in the lab uh, are uh, aimed at getting proteomics map of, of uh, tissues, not only RNA maps. And we're doing this with an approach we call spatial sorting, where we basically we use our RNA-based map to find surface markers that are expressed in different uh, zones within the tissue structures we're interested in. This enables us to dissociate an entire tissue and then basically sort out the cells that have the correct surface marker that matches the zones of interest. And so we have we sort of have a bulk measurement of many, many tens of thousands of cells, uh, but the cells are, are coming from the same region, from the same zone in the tissue. Um, so we've generated these protein maps for both the liver and the intestine, two very highly zonated uh, tissues we're, we're interested in. And, and to our surprise, we found something uh, very interesting. We found that in the intestine, we found spatial discordances between uh, many RNA and protein molecules. The intestine is, is, uh, is a very interesting uh, tissue. It's made up of crypts and villi. It's made of uh, uh, a convoluted uh, single layer of epithelium that forms this folded structure made of crib fingers and villi fingers, and cells are not static. They're continuously migrating, unlike in the liver where cells are static. The cells are continuously migrating along the main uh, tissue axis, and uh, it takes them about four days to migrate from uh, the crypts where the cells are born until they reach the tip of the villi where they're shed off uh, into, the, into the lumen. We basically, the way this tissue works is that we have stem cells in the crypt that constantly divide to make new cells that are flowing upwards along uh, these villi as they operate in absorbing food and, and protecting against bacteria. And four days after they're born from 
uh, from the cryptor shed off into the lumen. Now, because this is a system where the migration is so fast, um, we actually can find situations where uh, RNA doesn't always determine proteins in the same zone. So we can have an RNA that peaks in expression at the bottom of the villus and then goes down in expression as the enterocytes are migrating upwards. But if the protein is very stable, for example, if the protein lives for three or four days, then even though the RNA, that, that's the substrate for the ribosome uh, production of the protein, even though the RNA goes down, the protein just continues to accumulate. So we found quite a few examples of uh, genes where if we just look at an RNA spatial map of the tissue, we would infer that uh, the function of the relevant uh, gene is at the bottom or middle of the villus. But then when we examine proteins, we find that the uh, peak expression is actually higher up towards the villi tips. So this is an example um, where protein measurements were actually important um, to get, to get the, the functional spatial division of labor along the structure. Thank you for this. Um, and also, so you use a lot of animal models during your research to investigate this. Could you talk a little bit about, for our listeners, the importance of using animal models and why you have to use them for this? Yeah, of course, animal models, uh, mouse models allow us a lot of uh, flexibility to get into mechanisms uh, that control the, the tissue patterns that, that we and others are, are observing. I'll just give an example of, uh, we discussed these crypts in villi, and, and really we found that as the enterocytes migrate along the villus, about 90% of their genes are constantly changing. Uh, so these enterocytes that absorb food are not uh, uniform cells. They're, they're completely different between the bottom of the villus, the middle of the tip. And a question that really interested us uh, were what were the mechanisms that, that shaped these spatial uh, expression profiles? And, um, and we were looking at the stroma. The stroma is sort of the the region of the tissue that's on the basal side of the epithelium. On the luminal side, we have the food and the bacteria. And on the basal side, uh, you have uh, the stromal component, which is composed of endothelial cells, fibroblasts, immune cells. And we basically uh, used laser capture microdissection to profile uh, the zoonated stroma. And we found some very interesting molecules that reside specifically at the tip. Uh, one of them was basically a marker for a very unique cell type uh, that we found that the stroma of the villus tip, uh, it's called the telocyte, the villus tip telocyte. And uh, these are cells that specifically express a, sing a single gene that's not expressed by any other cells in the stroma. And so uh, to see, and we found that these cells uh, express a lot of molecules that we hypothesized might be shaping the zonation of uh, uh, the enterocytes that are migrating upwards. And so to examine the hypothesis that these are the signaling centers that actually shape the expression of the epithelial uh, cells. Uh, we use the diphtheria toxin uh, receptor mouse model. This is a mouse model where the cells, the, where all the cells in the mouse that express this gene of interest, the marker of the cell type we're interested in, um, also express diphtheria toxin receptor. Diphtheria to toxin receptor is a, is a gene that's not expressed in the mouse. But we have, when you have a transgenic mouse that does express diphtheria toxin receptor, and you inject diphtheria toxin, all of the cells that have the diphtheria toxin receptor will incorporate the diphtheria toxin and will die. So this is a very uh, powerful method. Of course, diphtheria toxin receptor models exist for many uh, genes. Uh, for us, it was interesting because we could specifically ablate, specifically kill uh, 
these zonated stromal cells that we suspected might have an effect on the tissue, and then examine the resulting impact on the villous epithelial cells. And indeed, we found that when in vivo, in this mouse, when we ablated these specific uh, tip pterocytes, uh, many of the genes uh, in the villous tip enterocytes uh, changed in expression. So this enables you to sort of make a functional connection that uh, signals from these uh, stromal cell components might be very, very important in shaping the zonated expression program of the migrating, migrating enterocytes at the first tip. Thanks. Um, I have a question. I'm just intrigued by these telocytes and also the other stromal compartments. Um, components. Did you look at um, fibroblasts, for example, or the other um, yeah, stromal yes. cell populations and what happens to them? Yeah, uh, definitely. So, so the telocytes are, are sort of a subset of, of uh, fibroblasts. They're sort of the, they're, they're really very interesting cells. They're the longest cells in our body after neurons. They're about 200 micron in length and they, they're both hugging the epithelium and are also actually producing the matrix, the, the the extracellular matrix component uh, that's very important for the epithelial cells to migrate along. Um, but they also have protrusions that, that uh, flow deep into the stroma and they're in contact with, with other cell types. They're, they're sort of really the scaffold of the tissue and they have a day, day job and a night job. Their day job is to talk to the epithelium and control the epithelial expression profiles. Their night job, I guess, is to talk to many other stroma components. We don't even know uh, the details of, of these interactions. Uh, of course, there's other stromal components that are very interesting. There's immune cells. Uh, they are more dynamic, and so uh, it's harder to tease out zonated uh, expression signatures for these. Uh, there's neurons that are very, very important in the gut, and they might have different signature depending on uh, the position along the, the villus axis. Uh, endothelial cells and lymphatic cells are also static cells um, that could have zonated expression uh, signatures. Uh, I think we're just starting to characterize these additional uh, zonated uh, cell types, and I think their interactions would be very interesting uh, and important for, for the tissue function. Definitely. Um, so have you looked to see, do you get the same results in the human, or how does this actually apply to the human intestine? Yeah, we're just we're just starting, uh, not starting, we're, we're we're engaged in uh, reconstructing these same zonated programs in, along the human crypt versus axis. Uh, there are some parallels, but there's also a lot of differences. Um, for example, these tip telocytes have a completely different uh, that we find in mice. We don't find them in human. Uh, a lot of tip expression programs we find in mice, we don't find in human. I think. There's a lot of differences between the mouse and human small intestine. Definitely morphologically, they're very similar. They have crypts, they have villi. Uh, there's stem cells that have very similar markers. Um, our our um, impression from the initial studies we're doing uh, are that uh, things like spatial discordances of RNA and proteins are less pronounced in human compared to the mouse. Uh, and part of this is because the migration along the villus axis in human is much slower. In the mouse, the crypt cells divide like crazy every day or, or two days for the progenitors. In the human crypt, divisions are much more scarce. The stem cells divide much less frequently. Uh, when you have less divisions in the crypt, you have less mitotic pressure uh, and less migration uh, and, and slower migration along the villus axis. 
And all of these changes, of course, this is an inter interesting uh, adaptation because uh, if you think about it, this strategy of uh, stem cells dividing every day is a very dangerous strategy for stem cell maintained tissue. Whenever cells divide, uh, the DNA is open and can acquire mutations. And uh, this is very different between mice and human. Human live for 80 or 90 years. Uh, so if there were, we had a division every day, we would have tens of thousands of divisions and um, a potential for acquiring uh, tumors. So less frequent divisions might be a very important design principle for a long-lived animal uh, like human. Of course, the trade-off is that we have slower migration along the villus axis. And we think a lot of the zonation program are adapting uh, to this very, very different transit time from the bottom of the villus to the tip. Uh, but we're just starting to scratch the surface here and, and characterize the differences. So then in that case, I mean, I find that really interesting. So in that case, would you expect to then see more similar zonations in a human cancer model than you would in the yeah, yeah, this is interesting. I think I think in, in a cancer model, uh, the cells are, are, are too different uh, to really maintain. I mean, you basically you have uh, transformed crypt cells uh, with uh, usually several pathways, uh, canonical wind and P53 and RAS, and several pathways that, that strongly impact all of the uh, differentiation trajectory, differentiation programs. Um, you are right that in terms of divisions, um, it might be more similar to the mouse normal intestine over the human's uh, intestine. I think morphologically, though, uh, the adenomas would be would still be very very divergent from the normal tissue. But again, it's an hypothesis we we never really looked at it. So it's an interesting uh, direction to look at zonated uh, expression signatures, at least in adenomas in early adenomas. I think it's an it's an interesting avenue. Thank you for that. It's all in. It's all so interesting. I feel like I could talk to you for hours about your research, especially as you um, presented so many different projects, which was just fantastic. Um, for the for the interest of our uh, listeners, however, I'm just going to ask you a couple of more general questions, if that's okay. So, yeah. firstly, about your career progression, really, what made you so interested in? Um, pursuing this avenue of research and how did you get into it? Yeah, so I, I, I did the, my bachelor's in physics and math and then my master's in electrical engineering. So I come from a sort of more an engineering background and, uh, and I was very intrigued uh, about biological systems in terms of uh, design principle. I mean, we, when you look at, at any biological system, a single bacteria, uh, from a single bacteria to, to, you know, to the organs in our body, it's clear that we have uh, optimization. We, we have uh, design principles for optimal function. Evolution is uh, selected for optimal function. And um, one of the neat things uh, uh, that I think engineers also, engineer, engineers like to reverse engineer systems. You know, you can take a radio, open it up, and then try to understand how it works without any prior knowledge. So, so we wanna understand the basic circuit uh, components and how they're wired and, and then, Using this approach, you can sort of infer something about the system's uh, behavior, how a radio actually works. And I think uh, it's kind of multi-layered. Uh, is, is also done these days in systems, what's called systems biology. You're really characterizing the individual components 
uh, molecules within the cell, cells within the tissue, how they're arranged, how they interact. And, um, and then you, you can resolve patterns. And, and then when you see these patterns, which are clearly being optimized by evolution, uh, you can infer what are the design principles? What have they been uh, evolutionarily selected for? So this is sort of a, it's like a basic science idea, but uh, as a byproduct, I think that once you resolve these patterns, you can also start to understand processes in tissue uh, uh, pathology and pathophysiology, uh, which in recent years, actually, so my, my, my initial motivation was the sort of design principle angle, but I think when you get such a detailed, um, a picture of tissues as we're able to to get with the modern technologies you can really start to understand the dynamics of, of of interesting disease which is something i'm very excited about thank you so what has been your favorite organ to work on and why is it the intestine or because i know you work on multiple different for example i think also the pancreas you've worked on at one point yeah, it's okay. It's a really tough question. I mean, I have uh, I have three kids and I have uh, three organs I'm working on. Uh, so I think it's the same. I don't have a favorite. Uh, each one is very different. <laughs> so we work on the pancreas, the liver, the intestine. Uh, each one is amazing, has its own uh, complexities, uh, but there's a lot of parallels. Uh, they also interact like my kids. But this makes it even uh, more complex. Uh, so I don't have like a favorite organ, but um, uh, definitely, you know, the, the gut, the gut, the liver, and, and the pancreas are, are sort of uh, systems. There's, there, there are also systems involved in glucose homeostasis, which is a which is a topic I'm very interested in. Um, you know, we have we have like four grams of, of glucose in our blood. Then you get it's like a teaspoon of glucose, and and we ingest humongous amounts of uh, glucose in every meal. We, taken like 80 grams of glucose, but our blood glucose levels go f- goes from four grams to maybe five or six. And then, you know, when we jog, our body burns uh, like 50 grams of glucose, but blood glucose level would barely change. And this is all a result of this concerted action of the liver and the pancreas and the intestine. And um, so it's just one example how these three organs together can shape uh, homeostatic parameters that are very interesting. And when, when things go wrong, like in diabetes, I think you really need to understand the details of, of the changes in each one of these organs uh, to start to make sense of, of, of what's what's going wrong. So do you see like a lot of the same cell populations that are present across these different organs? Do you see a lot of... Yeah, so uh, it's a good question. In the pancreas and in the gut, we have some interesting analogies. In the gut, so most of the cells in the gut in the intestine are these nutrient-absorbing cells. Uh, but we have a minority of 1% of the cells that are sort of interrelated along these uh, villi that are called the enteroendocrine cells. These are cells that secrete hormones. And they're actually quite similar to uh, the hormone-secreting cells in the pancreas. The, in the pancreas, we have the endocrine pancreas, where cells secrete insulin and glucagon. Uh, and in the gut, we also have hormone-secreting cells. Um, and they're actually, they're, they're very, very similar in terms of their gene expression. Quite amazingly, actually, we just had uh, recently a study where we studied the hormone-producing cells in the human fetus, and we found that actually they sort of have a hidden program where they express insulin. They're actually, they, they're, they actually look almost exactly like uh, pancreatic beta cells. This is sort of a time in the... Uh, in the, tish, in, in the tissues uh, 
lifetime where, where the main function of the cells is not really needed. During fetal life, we don't have any exposure to nutrients coming in from uh, the lumen of the intestine. Everything comes from the mother. So there's a lot of cells there and, and they can sort of, uh, you know, they have a day job, a, a postnatal job of secreting certain hormones. Now in the, in the fetal life, they can do something else because the hormones that prepare our body for incoming meals are not needed. And so we actually see trans differentiation of some of these endocrine cells, uh, sort of an insulin producing cell type. Uh, other than that, uh, there's also a lot of differences. Liver cells are very different uh, than intestinal cells. They're much more diverse. In the intestine, we have sublineages that either absorb food or secrete mucus or secrete hormones. Liver cells are super interesting because they're multitaskers. They do everything. Uh, they secrete all the proteins in our blood. They produce glucose. They store nutrients. Uh, they produce hormones. Um, they produce a machinery that detoxifies blood. And all of these uh, functions are performed by the hepatocyte, which is the main cell type. Uh, again, there's division of labor, but, but in, in terms of uh, multitasking, I think the liver is the champion among these three organs. Thanks. I think that's so interesting that you found in insulin producing cells in the intestine. Do you think, so is there like a clinical application of that for making insulin positive cells for like diabetes uh, treatments or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very far, but uh, you know, one of the dreams, and this is something actually that was not, it's not our idea. This has been uh, around for a while. <clears throat> we just proved that that human uh, intestinal hormone producing cells naturally produce insulin. But uh, the ability to transdifferentiate an existing cell type in the body to become a better cell uh, is very attractive. It's very attractive because, uh, you know, diabetes needs insulin and you can either supply it uh, with injections, which is uh, inconvenient, uh, or you can supply uh, cells. You know, you can uh, have an ex vivo differentiation of embryonic stem cells or IPS into insulin producing cells that you can then implant. Um, but of course this is a, or you can in, implant whole islets from cadavers, uh, but these are invasive. So if you have an, you know, an endogenous potential source uh, of cells that you can convince, you know, with drugs or with some kind of treatment to awaken a program like that of insulin production, this could be very attractive. It, it could be particularly attractive in the intestine because the entire intestine is, is turned over every week. We shed off 35 grams of dead uh, epithelial cells every day. So 35 grams of tissue are lost every day and made fresh from stem cells. So if there's some kind of hidden program that can generate insulin producing cells that's in the gut, that's of course very attractive because in type one diabetes, even if you implant beta cells, you still have to protect them from the autoimmune attack. Um, but if these cells are, are you know, generated all the time and turned over, then maybe such a source of insulin could be more, sen more less sensitive to autoimmune attack. And of course, this is all very, very far in the future, uh, but it is interesting if you can pinpoint uh, the tissues and the cellular states, again, with single cell RNA sequencing, you can not only identify cells, but also characterize their complete molecular makeup, then that can, that can give you maybe hints on uh, where to put your efforts in order to try to awaken these kind of uh, hidden uh, expression signatures. Yeah, it's definitely something really interesting to think about as an avenue of investigation. Um, so just uh, looking at the time there, 
as a last kind of question, what advice would you give to new scientists just starting out in their career? Uh, yeah, I think uh, follow follow your heart, follow your passion, uh, believe in yourself, uh, try to be independent. Uh, you know, in the transition from a PhD to a postdoc, um, try try to you know to put in uh, uh, something of yourself. Um, I think it's very often nice to. So that's sort of a, a taste. Uh, it's, it's not. It's not always uh, uh, good for everybody. But I found that that it's nice to sometimes transition between topics. It's going to allow you to give some kind of uh, um, new insight from another another discipline or another direction, which is also I think something that can that can be nice. Uh, but yeah, definitely you know follow your passion, whatever you're interested in. Don't lose hope when experiments are not working, and and believe in yourself. That last one is a good one. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful chatting with you. Mm -hmm.